Uh, we're in the midst of discussing the great religious whore, ecclesiastical Babylon. Verses 1 and 2, she's introduced. Verses 3 through 6, she's described. We're going to see later, she's interpreted, or her relationship or position in terms of the beast or the Antichrist is discussed. And so we were in the midst of this description here. And in verse 3, last time we talked about her position, she's seated upon this beast. And that verb there is telling us that she's seated on the beast as a rider is seated upon a horse. And that rider guides that horse, directs that horse. The, the horse supports him and takes him where he needs to go, but he guides and directs the horse. That's the position here. Then we talked a little bit about her manifestation. She's manifested in purple and scarlet, a golden chalice, drunken with the bloods of the saints and the martyrs, a prostitute. Okay, And then um, now I want to look at verse 5 is where we stopped last time. We're going to talk about her name. Okay, Her name is very important to how we would interpret and apply this passage. It's the name that identifies what we're talking about here. And it's the name that distinguishes chapter 17 from chapter 18. Chapter 18 and 17 and 18 have a continuity. And it's all about the world system. But there's two facets of the world system that have worked together. That have mutually worked together and propped each other up and ushered each other in and out. And one day, one of those facets that owes his existence to the other is going to do what the devil characteristically does with those he uses for his own benefit. He turns upon them and destroys them. That's what the devil does. The devil lures people and promises them things and lures them for his own purposes, but he always betrays them. We can see that in our country. You know, these powerful uh, persona come and go. Powerful politicians. And then one day, they're a nobody. The moment they die, they're forgotten. Who talks about Ted Kennedy anymore? He's gone. He's in hell. Who talks about him anymore? Who even talks about the Kennedys anymore? Great political dynasty. You know, Kennedy was the very first Roman Catholic president that this country ever had. Of course, nowadays, his, some of his economic policies would have been more conservative and Republican than Democrat by far. But Ken Kennedy was a Catholic... And actually, in, the, in his days when they were campaigning for the presidency, that was one of the things that his opponents talked about. Was how can we put a Catholic in government, considering where this country came from? If you go back to the founding of this country and the, the political chaos and everything that stirred up the colonists coming down from Great Britain and the King of England, King George, the taxes, you know, you remember the tea tax and all of these other things, that stirred up the country. Much like we see the media today, but what really caused it to boil over in terms of ushering in the revolution was not a tax on tea. It wasn't a tax on commodities. It was what was called the Quebec Act that the British government passed. And the, what the Quebec Act did is it allowed the French, and particularly the French Catholics, to settle <coughs> land west of the Appalachian Mountains, to come in there and settle it. And basically it was a partnership of Great Britain with the French Catholics to 
hem in the colonists and keep them under control. And that was it as far as the colonists were concerned. They wanted no part of Rome. They wanted no part of mother whore. They wanted no part of Catholicism influencing their way of life. Many of them had fled that. And there were roots of it in places like Maryland that were established as Catholic colonies. But the Quebec Act is what sent it boiling over. Uh, But nowadays, we look at our country and uh, there's more Roman Catholics in government than anything else. Look at the Supreme Court. How many of them are Catholics? Catholics. Yeah, Fox News, mostly Catholics. Catholics aren't your friend, Christian. The Catholic Church is not a friend of the Bible-believing Christian. Never has been. Just like institutionalized religion going back to the beginning of time has never been a friend of the followers of the Most High God. Institutionalized religion wasn't a friend of those that followed the Most High God after the flood. That garbage, that paganism founded by Nimrod was never a friend of Shem and Melchizedek, the followers of the Most High God. Abraham and his faith was not a friend of the Canaanite religion in the land. Within Israel, those that were swayed into idolatry were never friends of the, the, the remnant. Look what Israel did to Jesus and his apostles who preached and practiced the Bible and the Old Testament Moses more than even the religious leaders of their day. That's why Jesus said, if you really believed Moses, then you would believe my words because he testified of me. But institutionalized religion and commercialism or or world government have always worked hand in hand, but yet they're distinct. And the name here of this whore... (coughs) is very important. It distinguishes her. Or what's talked about or emphasized in chapter 17 from what goes to chapter 18. Very important. It says in verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written. This reminds me of what we see back in chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. You see, the the Jewish remnant preserved during the tribulation has their father's name, their God's name, the God of Israel on their foreheads. But this religious prostitute, this religious entity that claims a relationship with God doesn't have its God's name on their forehead. It has her name on her forehead. Back in Roman times, this was a common, common imagery for a prostitute. Harlots were known for putting their names on their foreheads. They advertised that that's what they were. They were proud. That was a common imagery. So for John to see a name on her forehead, identifying who she was, was nothing of any surprise. It's what harlots did. They advertised. They were proud. It's what homosexuals do here in America today. You know, homosexual men may as well put their name saying, I'm gay, on their forehead based on the way they act. I mean, you know, this femininity and and it's nothing original. It's all the same. You know, lesbians have their little way of acting, which may as well be their name on their forehead, and homosexuals have the same. And it's all the same. There's nothing original. At least with normal people, you have a variety of demeanors and attitudes. But it's like everybody's trying to be the same thing. It's a pride there. I'm thought about Romans 1 talks about those that not only sin but take pleasure in it. And that's this entity here. Roman Catholicism not only sins against God as an institution, 
not only defies the Word of God, but it takes pride in it. Rabbinic Judaism does the same thing. It denies the Word of God while claiming to follow the Word of God. And it does it proudly. Some of the things that the Talmuds and the Jewish rabbis say about Jesus the Messiah is 10,000, even the Quran wouldn't speak of Jesus in that way. Even the Quran, the Quran doesn't curse Jesus. It denies that he's anything more than a prophet, but even Muslims treat the name and the concept of Jesus as a prophet with a modicum of respect, not rabbinic Judaism. Some of the things written in the Talmud about Jesus, I won't even repeat from the pulpit. Some of the things I've heard Jewish rabbis screaming and hollering on videos saying they should kill Jewish people that aren't Jewish anymore because they believe in a Jewish Messiah, some of those things I won't repeat. But that's what religion does. That's what false religion does. And those entities are represented here. A false religious system. A spiritual prostitute. We have a name here. This name is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. In this name we have two parts. We have a formal title. What is her formal title? Her formal title is Mystery Babylon the Great. This is Mystery Babylon the Great. Then we have her position or her role. What is she? She's the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Mystery Babylon the Great is her title. That's her title. Like a king has a title. Like a president has a title. A title she's proud of. Now, when you look in the King James here, the word mystery is capitalized. It's part of her title. This is not Babylon the Great. This is Mystery Babylon the Great. Now, a lot of the modern versions articulate this as if mystery is not part of the name. And so it's, it's lowercase. Now, if you look back at the Greek text, which was the basis for the King James Bible, as well as the Reformation Bibles, that was preserved down through the centuries by the saints and the martyrs, the same ones that this whore is drunk with, that wasn't sourced in Rome or in Alexandria, the pagan center of the ancient world, but was sourced in the places where the early Christians took the Word of God and preserved it. In the days of the Reformation, it was called the Received Text, the Textus Receptus in Latin. The Received Text is what was understood to be the correct line or lineage of God's Word preserved through the the Greek language. The received text, as it was printed in the Reformation, capitalized this word. It was part of the name and the title. And that's why it's retained in the King James Bible. Some of the other Greek uh, 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 branches that came through Catholicism or through the Latin that was corrupted over the years... You know, Satan's always tried to corrupt God's Word. He did it in the Garden of Eden. But that doesn't mean God doesn't preserve His Word. We, and we can know where it is and we can discern it through the Holy Spirit and His illumination. And a lot of times through common sense, if we have eyes to see. But this title is, this word is capitalized in the Greek received text. And that's why the King James retained it. It is part of the title. And that word mystery is important. Because what it tells us is that this is a symbol here in chapter 17. This is not the literal city of Babylon that's being talked about. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's capital. 
I would say that this is not the same, although it's part of it and part of the world system, it's not the exact same as Babylon the Great that we're going to see in Revelation 18. In 18, we have Babylon the Great. Here we have mystery Babylon the Great. When I think of mystery Babylon, when I think of the religious, false religious system, not a religious system that's obviously false and worships idols with blue arms and eyes on their forehead and, and some guy that they claim is a god, although he never claimed to be God, those that worship a prophet. You know, some of those are obviously false. I mean, man-made religion is all part of the system. But when you're talking about a mystery false religious system, you talk about one that appears genuine. And since the dawning of the church age, when Messiah was revealed to the world, and God's redemption plan was through Jesus, and salvation came through Jesus, there's only one system, in a, in a sense, that has... Many systems have bastardized who God is. But there's only one that bastardizes not only who God is, but who Jesus is while claiming to follow both God and Jesus. That's the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church claims Jesus is the Son of God. They claim He died and was buried and rose from the dead. But they don't give or assign Him the authority that the Scriptures assign Him. Catholic Jesus is a false Jesus. In Catholic Jesus is mystery Babylon that goes back to Semiramis and Tammuz and Nimrod and all that mess we've talked about before. And look at where we are today going back to even in this country the election of President Kennedy. Look at the overwhelming desire we see within the American churches to return to its mother, to return to Rome. You know, 50, 60 years ago, you wouldn't have ever heard, you never would have heard evangelical Bible believers speaking of Roman Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ. But now it's like a crime. It's a hate crime. How dare you speak of them as if they're not our brothers and sisters? Even some very uh, uh, powerful preachers, those that have been used by God, have been caught up falling into that. You know, I'm not... I mean, praise God for how he used Billy Graham all those years, but there were times going back years ago where he said some things that reflected this spirit. And we see that today. You know, Mormon Jesus. All of a sudden, Mormons are Christians now. Even Mormons 30, 40 years ago would never have said, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian, I'm a Mormon. Where we're heading in Latin America, you meet Catholics down there, at least they're honest. I'm not a Catholic. I mean, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Catholic. No soy cristiano, yo soy católica. Católico. I'm a Catholic, I'm not a Christian. At least down there, they know and understand the difference. Here it's all messed up. But there's an overwhelming return to Rome. A lot of the Reformation churches that came out of Catholicism are now going back to it today. It's undeniable. Now, Baptistic Christians never came out of Rome never came out of Rome. That's why a lot of Baptist churches have been the last bastions to hold out, but even they're going back or following others back. 
There is a return to the spirit of Roman Catholicism within the church. There's no doubt about that. That has to be part of what we see here. Mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This is her position and her role. Her title is Mystery Babylon. This is a symbol of something. It's a symbol of, a, of, of, of ecclesiastical Babylon. It's a spirit of spiritual adultery. Her position and her role is mother of harlots and abominations. The ultimate cesspool of iniquity. Now, I'm not going to talk about this today because we've already done it in this study. We've talked about the root of Babylonian paganism or the false religious system that goes back to right after the flood with Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which means confusion. And that's what religious paganism is, confusion. Babylonian paganism is confusion. It's a corruption of the revelation of the true God that happened very shortly after the flood and resulted in the Tower of Babel. Whereas God preserved the truth through a line of men that would come down to Abraham. We've talked about how the Roman church was birthed out of that stream of Babylonian paganism that continued through the years, down through the world empire. You know, down, you know, after Babylon, it moved to Pergamos, the seat of Satan, and it was preserved by the Adelan priest kings. And that area was absorbed into Greece and the Roman Empire and reared its ugly head in the, in the mythologies and the religions of the Greeks and the Romans and then ultimately absorbed the Christianity of the empire and took the God and Jesus of biblical Christianity and for political purposes married it under Constantine. And then just took Christian names and applied it to the same spirit of paganism. The same pantheon of gods and goddesses that the Greeks and the Romans worship that you read about in Greek mythology. For political purposes, the Roman government took and turned them into the saints. Venus or Aphrodite became Mary. In Rome, they were burning incense to Venus, the Greek goddess of love. They changed the name to Mary and they're still, the Catholics still doing it today. The saints they pray to are the Roman gods and goddesses, the Hindu gods and deities that have been worshipped by men, the devils and the spirits that have engulfed this false religious system going back to the days after the flood. You know, this spirit was checked during the period of Reformation and the Philadelphia church period where God wrought a great revival, where God wrought a great harvest. And since... The closing of that period, it's been slowly recovering in Laodicea. And what we have here is a full-blown ecclesiastical whore that can only become full-blown after the true church is taken out. The power and authority of the false religious system as was seen in Roman Catholicism for over a thousand years is going to revive. It's going to revive just like the empire revives. In a way, it's kind of the opposite here in 17 and 18 of what happened historically. The Roman Empire arose and gave birth to Roman Catholicism that dominated the civilized world for over a thousand years, butchered over 50 million Bible-believing Christians. Do I need to sit here and talk about the burning 
of William Tyndale at the stake, the digging up of John Wycliffe's bones and casting them into the river Swift. Do I need to talk about the burning of John Huss or the martyrdom of Thomas Matthews? Men that just simply, all their crime was, was translating the Bible into vernacular tongues. The empire, or the, the church assumed the empire. But what we're going to see happen at the end of days when I believe when the true church is taken out is the empire, the last form of imperial government assumes the church. So one gives birth, commercial Babylon gives birth to religious Babylon and religious Babylon regains its power and authority to give birth to the ultimate commercial Babylon. That relationship we saw in the Roman Empire with the Roman Catholicism is going to be revived. We know the Roman Empire will be revived. Daniel only saw four Gentile kingdoms. The last one had two phases as we're going to see here in chapter 17. And the false religious spirit that went with it in the the beginning is going to be revived with it. That's the great whore here. And we see the power and influence of Catholicism rising. Rising. Not like it used to be. But once the true church is taken out and there's no uh, restrainer of evil... Somebody's going to fill the void. People are going to be looking for answers and somebody's going to stand up and say, hey, this is the truth and people will follow in droves and give rise, therefore, and usher in Antichrist and his kingdom. So we see the name here. The word mystery is really important. This is a symbol. This is a mystery. And it actually requires the angel to interpret it for John. I can't believe historically that this does not in some way involve a future manifestation of the Roman Catholic Church in terms of its power and authority. In terms of this image here of what she does on the beast is is a, uh, what's the word? It's a picture perfect description of more than a thousand years of world history following the fall of the political Roman Empire. It's a picture. Popes told kings what to do and they did it. One time a powerful king came to where the Pope was and sat out in the snow and prostrated himself for three days begging the Pope's forgiveness. They were scared to death that the Pope would interdict a a, a king or a nation and excommunicate them from the church. We talked about all that during the Thyatira message to the church at Thyatira. Verse 6 We've seen her, her position. We've seen her um, manifestation, her, uh, her name. Here we have her bloodthirstiness. She's bloodthirsty. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered with great ag- admiration. This whore is drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Now, many... Religious systems throughout history, false religious systems are drunk with the blood of God-fearing people. But when you look at what's described here, we're talking about the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So this is uh, limit. I mean, this is uh, defined as those who are martyred, martyrs of Jesus. This is New Testament dispensation here. And when we think of the martyrs of Jesus. There's no other entity anywhere in the world that's ever come close historically in the 2,000 years of the church in terms of sheer numbers than Catholicism. It has butchered more martyrs and saints than any other entity involved. 
Muslims have killed more Muslims than they have Christians throughout history. But you can't see this verse and this image here and think about saints and martyrs and not think about Roman Catholicism. There has to be a tie here to that entity. Drunk on the blood of saints and martyrs. A New Testament dispensation. When we go over to chapter 18 and verse 24, we have commercial Babylon. And in verse 24 it says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So what that tells me is chapter 17 is focusing on an entity that has been active particularly in the New Testament dispensation. And then chapter 18 zooms out to include an entity that's been active in both Old and New Testament dispensations. Saints and martyrs of Jesus are the victims of mystery Babylon. The saints and the prophets and all that are slain upon the earth are the victims of commercial Babylon. They're one in terms of being a, the world system. The world system's always had a religious and a commercial element, but yet they're distinct. So that further tells us there's a distinction here in these two chapters. Now we're told, John, when I saw her, this woman drunk with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs, I wondered with great admiration. That word in Greek translated admiration is a very strong word. If I were to do with the Greek what the NIV does, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. You know, we say, well, the Living Bible is a paraphrase. Well, the New Living Translation is a paraphrase. The NIV is a paraphrase. It is not a literal translation of what's come down to us in the Greek and Hebrew. It's a what they call dynamic equivalence. The translator writes out what he thinks the person will say. And there's ways to do this. We do this when we preach and exegete the Scriptures, but we don't change the Scriptures. So if I were to take the NIV approach and translate this, John saw her and he simply could not believe his eyes. He could not believe what he was seeing. That's how strong the word used there. So my question here is if this is talking about political Rome or political, a political entity, a government, an imperial government like Rome, like Greek, Persia, Babylon before it, why was John surprised? John was living in the midst of the Roman Empire's intense persecutions of the Christians. He was the victim of it. That's why he was on the Isle of Paphos. Pathos. Or Paphos. Which one was it? Patmos. Not Paphos or Pathos. Sorry. John was the victim of persecution against Christians and Jews from the hands of pagan Rome. John lived in the time of Diocletian. Diocletian was one of the worst persecutors of the Roman emperors against the Christians. That's no surprise. If what John is seeing here is political Rome, there'd be no reason to be surprised. That was all around him. 
That had been the case for Jews and Christians going back to the time of Jesus. Rome ordered the crucifixion of Christ. The apostles were persecuted and killed by the Roman government because the Jews stirred them up. Look at the book of Acts. Paul's epistles. Paul was put in a Roman jail. Paul was executed by a Roman emperor. What John sees here is not persecution of Christians at the hands of a pagan government, of pagan Rome. What he sees is persecution or martyrdom against the saints in the name of Jesus at the hands of what claims to be a church, what confesses the things that he believes and preaches. And if you go back to John's epistles that were written at the same time as Revelation, what's he warning about? The Christians about more than anything else. The false Jesus. The false spirit of Antichrist. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Test the spirits. Because many false prophets are going out into the world. He wasn't telling them to test the spirits regarding the Roman pantheon of gods. But test the spirits of those that claim to preach and follow the Jesus Christ Messiah that they had, the apostles had preached. What John sees here is an entity drunk on the blood of saints and martyrs of Jesus that shocks him. It shocks him because this is an entity that claims the God and the Messiah that he himself knew personally and walked with. Like I said, if you took one window of time, a thousand years, a thousand years we call the Dark Ages, A.D. 500 to 1500 alone, let's make it simple. The Roman church was responsible for the martyrdom of over 50 million Bible believers. Waldensians, Anabaptists, Paulicans, Arnoldists, all the, they always had a name for somebody that believed the Bible. Anytime in Roman Catholic history or church history textbook following Catholic history, usually your typical church history class covers Catholic history from Constantine AD 1500, then it gets into Reformation. And so... In following that history that's rooted in a lot of Catholic sources, anytime you see somebody called a heretic, remember that's Catholics calling them heretics. So it'd be worth seeing what these people really believe. But persecution. Pers- there were times when the Roman church sent garrisons into communities of Albigensians in France and, and Waldensians in the Valdoy Valley of northern Italy and just wiped the whole place out. I mean... It, may, it makes ISIS look like a schoolyard, uh, a schoolyard fight compared to what the Catholics did. I mean, ISIS has nothing on what Catholics did in this period of time. Nothing. 50 million Bible believers, nothing in history ever close in terms of the martyrdom of the saints of Jesus. How is this image that shocks John? He cannot believe his eyes. How is it not related to the Roman Catholic Church? How's it not? Now I could understand 500, maybe a thousand years ago. I mean the reformers had enough sense to know it was related. The very first person in church history, the very first church history or church father to write a commentary on the book of Revelation said it was related to the Roman church. How can it not be? But notwithstanding, John is astonished. He's astonished and like Daniel who was astonished in some of his visions... Daniel was astonished when he saw that fourth Gentile kingdom come up out of the sea. It was a beast 
that had qualities of the others, but it was diverse, and it troubled him, and he needed an explanation. John needs an interpretation. He needs an explanation. When I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Why are you surprised? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. And then it goes down through verse 15. The angel provides this interpretation. Just like the angel provided interpretation for Daniel in his vision of the 70 weeks, in his vision of the kingdoms, in his vision of the he-goat and the ram, in his vision of the interactions between the king of the north and south and how that affected Israel. John here is given an interpretation. So in verses 1 through 2, this whore is introduced. In verses 3 through 6, she's manifest. And here, her involvement, there's a relationship involving her that's described. Remember, she's a whore. She's a prostitute. Prostitutes have sexual relationships, adulterous relationships. The adulterous relationship is what's important here. And that is what the angel goes on to describe. He says, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which had seven heads and ten horns. This ought to automatically cause us to go back to Revelation 12, the dragon. Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea, seven heads, ten horns. Back to Daniel's vision of the beast. Seven heads, ten horns. What we see in these verses as John begins to hear an explanation is that the angel interprets the beast first and with far more detail. Therefore, it's not necessarily the whore that's important. It's her relationship with the beast. Her name is important. It tells us there's a symbol here, an entity. It's not literal Babylon. And then her relationship with this beast, who I've told you is what I believe is a puppy. It's the puppy form of what we see in Revelation 13. In these next few verses, great care must be exercised in exegeting because these passages have seen more debate in history amongst genuine Bible believers. There's a lot of disagreement and argument over what this actually means. I'm not going to claim authoritatively to say what it is or what it means exactly. I don't think necessarily in terms of what people have proposed is an either-or situation. Biblical prophecy is such that it's multi-leveled. It's like an onion. It's multi-leveled. We've talked about shadow fulfillments and dual fulfillments. We've talked about how things are fulfilled in more than one aspect. One that's immediate. One that's ultimate. I mean, when King Ahaz was told a virgin would come and conceive, I mean, that was multi-leveled prophecy. There was an immediate aspect in which Isaiah took a prophetess who was a virgin and had a son. And before that son was old enough, the kings he was worried about were gone. But he also had an ultimate manifestation in Jesus. Those kings were gone when Jesus came around a thousand years later. Not a thousand years, 700 years later. So that's the nature of biblical prophecy. So why wouldn't that be the case here? But there's been a lot of debate. I can't read this passage knowing church history and not think that the Roman Catholic Church is involved here. That the Pope is involved. It's impossible for me to think that. Is that all that's involved there? No, I don't believe so. 
But we need to be careful. I'm not going to make any dogmatic statements here. I'm going to look at what we know to be a fact, both historically and scripturally. In verse 7, the angel said, I will show you the mystery. Mystery Babylon is the title. That tells us we're dealing with symbols. The angel says, I'm going to show you the mystery. There is symbolism involved. The mystery. This harkens me back to Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. You remember when we had that vision of the mighty angel that came down from heaven with the title deed of the earth in his hand? The Messiah as he appears in behalf of Israel like the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And uh, he takes the little book and he eats it. Well, in, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7... Says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's the seventh trumpet, we're in those days, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So we've already looked, seen that word mystery. We have the mystery of God. Here we have the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. We talked about the mystery of God back on April 26th. 2015, when I was exegeting chapter 10. Can you believe it's that long, almost three years ago? We talked about the mystery of God in this passage, and then we zoomed out to talk about mysteries in the Scriptures. Now, that's been so long ago, I just thought I would kind of review that a little bit. What is the mystery of God? What's the mystery? The mystery of God is the age-old problem going back to the oldest book of the Bible. What's the oldest book of the Bible? Job. There was no law, there was no Moses, there was no Abraham, anything mentioned in there. Job. The oldest book of the Bible, the age-old problem of why evil exists and why a benevolent God would allow sin, evil, and suffering in this world. Why the long time span of this present age of man why the long delay of our Lord in taking the kingdom and putting down evil to establish righteousness? Why? Isaiah asked, how long, O Lord, when will you come down? All that you would come down and rend the heavens. Psalm chapter 10, why? Psalm chapter 13, how long? Why God has allowed Satan to seemingly rule, reign, and wreak havoc on this planet. Why did God permit the fall and its results of sin, misery, and death? Why was the death of His Son necessitated as a means of forgiveness when He could have just done it some other way? Why not some other way to restore man? Why the long delay in the return of Christ and the lifting of the curse? Why have the righteous suffered throughout time and the wicked always seem to prosper. Why? Why do the wicked live to long ages and yet the righteous are snuffed out? Why? Why are fools and wicked evil devils like Bill and Hillary Clinton, they just won't go away. And yet godly people who love Israel are snuffed out despite the prayers of hundreds of saints over months for healing are snuffed out leaving a husband and children behind. It's the yeah, lady we prayed for in Saskatchewan. Why? That's the mystery of God. 
And there's coming a day when that mystery will be finished. And that mystery includes judgment upon mystery Babylon and Babylon the Great. Those mysteries are finished and they're answered in the days that we're talking about. But the questions are answered in Scripture. They're answered there for us. We ask why, but the answer's right there. What's the best answer? What's the best answer when people say why? You know, it's funny to me how, you know, when, when these school shootings happen, it's like, where was God? Even people that seem intelligent and discerning in other matters, why would God allow kids, Christian school kids in a bus to go off a cliff? Why would God allow this to happen? Where was a benevolent God? Well, what makes us think that we deserve better treatment than others everywhere else around the world? What's such an amazing ex- demonstration of God's absence here is a common thing around the world. But in our schools in particular, we told God to get out. And yet we get mad at Him because He's not there. We, he, he's a gentleman, He does. He steps away gracefully and then we get mad at Him because He's not there. Foolishness. But the answer to this great mystery is, is really summed up in the oldest book of the Bible. Something God says to Job at the very end of His discourse. And the example God uses in terms of His creation to make a point with Job, the very last example He uses is the great Leviathan, the great Satan, the author of evil. And in Job 40, 1, let's see, where is that? 41.11, here's the answer to the mystery of God. Wait a minute, yeah, 41.11, Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. That's the answer. I mean, that's a simple solution. What's under the heaven is God's. He can do with it whatever He pleases. He can do with it whatever He pleases. And until we recognize that and accept that, and thereby have spiritual eyes to see, we'll always be angry and discouraged and depressed. But that mystery is finished in these days. Job responds to this by saying, (laughs) I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. What these things that we see happening in our culture ought to cause us to do is respond like Job. But we respond the opposite. Because men are wicked. We see it in Revelation. They curse God. There's other mysteries in Scripture. The Bible talks about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Israel's blindness is a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. The church as Jew and Gentile together, a special program, the body of Christ is a mystery. The church as the bride of Christ is a mystery. The indwelling Christ, according to Colossians 1, how Christ dwells in our hearts once we receive Him is a mystery. Godliness is a mystery. People think they've got godliness figured out. It's got to fit a certain political checklist. Republican good, Democrat bad. No. There are elements of godliness 
that can even be found on the left side of the political aisle in some areas. Those on the left side that care about God's creatures are closer to godliness in that area than those on the right. It, it disgusts me to see big game trophy hunting. I hate it. I hate it. Guys go over and they shoot elephants so they can put a trophy on the wall. And our current government allows that. Our president has allowed that to happen. And he's rescinded some things that Obama put in place to stop the importation of big game trophies. That's despicable. But godliness is a mystery because it can pop up. Elements of it can pop up in different places. And we as Christians ought to pursue godliness completely. We should not try to fit a stereotype. We should be other than that. We shouldn't define ourselves by politics in this country. That's just as pathetic as a Jewish person defining themselves by the Holocaust and a black man defining himself by slavery, an institution that went out in America with the 13th Amendment? I think it's the 13th Amendment. I ought to know that. That's pathetic. We as Christians shouldn't define ourselves. I don't believe we should define ourselves as Republican or Democrat. You know, you may be registered as something. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We shouldn't define ourselves. We should be those that support our president no matter who he is, no matter what color his skin is, when he does something right. And we should be those that call him out when he does something wrong. There were some things that Obama did that were good. Stopping the importation of big game trophies into this country from Africa, particularly elephant. That's a good thing. I actually thought it was kind of cool when Obama sat down during NCAA tournament time and filled out the brackets. And I mean, he just kind of looked approachable. It was, it was, it, you know, the guy wasn't uh, aloof. That was a good thing. Not that it had any significance politically on the country. But we need to be those that step back and don't define godliness by one person or one party. Godliness is a mystery. And the greatest mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preaching to the Gentiles, believed in the world, and received up to glory. Godliness is a mystery. Iniquity is a mystery as well. Iniquity is a mystery. It pops up in places that are obvious, and it's dwelling and seething and festering in places that often we're too blind to see. That's why so many in the church are deceived by false teachers. Iniquity is a mystery. Babylon is a mystery. Mystery Babylon. But it will all be finished when the mystery of God is finished. So we talked about that. Those were some things that we looked at several years ago. You can go back and listen to that message online. But here we're told that the woman is a mystery and the beast that carries her is also part of that mystery Babylon. Or part of that mystery that the angel is going to interpret. So, it's not so much the woman, it's not so much the beast here, it's the relationship between the two that the angel is going to emphasize. The beast that carries her is as much a mystery as the woman herself. The angel says, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. This is mysterious. You know, we've seen seven, horn, seven heads and ten horns already. 
With the beast out of the sea, we know that's Antichrist. He looks like his father, the devil, because the devil, the dragon's got seven heads and ten horns. And all of those, that parenthesis there is focused upon the two wonders in heaven, the dragon and the woman, which is Israel. And that centers around the age-old hatred between Satan and the elect of God, the people of Israel. And that carries over into the church. The beast that carries her. The word used her means to support or to bear. But it has a connotation of being a burden. You know, there are things that I don't mind carrying or bearing. Okay? If I'm going for a long run, I'm going to bear a, a, a water bladder on my back. I don't mind that. It's not a big deal. I don't mind wearing a backpack when I go hiking. It doesn't bother me. I like carrying something. It makes it better exercise. But there are times when bearing something, when I travel, I've got a tote bag I use for my computer, and I can put it on my back. But the way it sits on the hips has certain positive things. But it's a burden walking through airports. It's a burden. I'll carry it. I bear it. But it's a burden, and I can't wait to take it off and stick it in the overhead compartment. That's what is being connoted here. The beast carries her, but this burden, this, this, this load is a burden that he's looking forward to getting rid of. And we're going to see that a little bit later. The relationship here between this beast and puppy form and this whore is a necessary evil from the beast's perspective. It's necessary. It serves a purpose, but he's waiting to get rid of it. In verse 8, we get into the beast himself and his career. Who is this beast? What is his career? Has he been here before? Verse 8, The beast that thou sawest, this is the interpretation now, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Which people that dwell on the earth? Those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They will wonder when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So, the angel reveals, he, he zooms in on this beast and who he is. And he's described as an entity that was and then there was a time when he is not, he didn't exist, and now he's back. And this causes the people of the world to wonder. John stares in amazement at this religious prostitute. But the people of the world in this day and time that John is seeing, not the ones that are the remnant, not the, not the uh, Jewish witnesses of the tribulation saints, but the ones not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, these wonder and are amazed at what they see. He was, he is not, and yet is from the perspective of them that dwell upon the earth. John surprised by the whore, the people of the earth, the wicked people of the earth surprised by the beast. Now what does this mean? He was, he is not, and yet he is. A lot of people have debated this. Some have spoken about how it refers to an individual person. Some have spoken about how it refers to Governments. Some have talked about uh, 
this is a person who was here before on the earth and he's going to come back and he's going to be the Antichrist. Some have said, well, this is just the Antichrist. He's assassinated in some form and comes back from the dead. Some have said, well, this is just the, the Roman Empire that comes back. So there's a lot of people and a lot of perspectives on this by genuine Bible believers. But I think what we have to remember is the nature of biblical prophecy. It's deeper than surface level. It's, it has, it, it has uh, multiple facets of fulfillment. So that when it's all said and done, we can say what we said when we looked at Nineveh and Tyre. It's fulfilled literally to the letter. Its details are unforeseeable and it's a stumbling block to the wicked. I don't think we have an either or here. I think we have a both and. I think what this was referring to has three aspects. When we talk about the beast that was, is not, and yet is, it has three aspects. Number one, it has a political aspect. This is imperial government. Imperial government. Now, how would I know that? Well, you, all you have to do is go down to verse 10 and we start seeing the word kings. And there are seven kings. The seven heads are kings. So we know that government has to be involved. And then we get down to verse 12 and the ten horns are kings. So there has to be a political element here. Because the, the, the uh, uh, entity, the, 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 the horns and the heads of this beast are kings according to the angel. So there is a political entity. We have seven kings. And then the beast himself, we learn, is the eighth king and is of the seven. The ten horns are ten kings that come to power at the same time that Antichrist does. And then they turn against the whore and devour her. There's a political element. Five are fallen. One is and the other is not yet come from John's perspective. Seven kings. The eighth king, Antichrist himself. So this beast that was is a form of government that used to be. There comes a time when it is not. And then there comes a time when it is again. Now we have lots of different governments in the world today that have influence over the world. But there's a type of government that had, ish, it, uh, that had uh, influence over the entire world that we saw in the great Gentile kingdoms that have kind of, it's kind of passed away. There are, there are powers out there trying to bring it back in, but it's still checked. And that's imperial government. That's government, an empire, governed by a world leader or a powerful leader like the emperor of Rome, like the king of Babylon, King Cyrus of Media, Media Persia, like Nimrod, the king of ancient Babylon. Imperial government. Imperial government guided the world for centuries. And then with the fall of the Roman Empire, it kind of went out. Now, the British had an empire, but it wasn't consolidated in the way that Rome was consolidated under an emperor. Rome started out as a republic. But when the republic got corrupt, the emperor took power to clean things up, to make Rome great again. See, Rome was like America is today with the Senate and the Republic got so corrupt and a leader stepped up and assumed power to make Rome great again. And the people loved it. Be careful what we think is good from a purely historic perspective in looking at what happened in the Roman Empire. 
There are things about what we see politically in America today that ought to cause us at least to step back and watch carefully and not give our allegiance to anybody. To respond, not react. But then with the Roman Empire's fall, the Roman Pope assumed that imperial authority and that imperialism continued through the Roman Church. Not the same as with the Roman Empire, but then it kind of the Reformation checked that, and then the British and the you know established its empire, but it wasn't under an it wasn't an empire in the sense of a ruling king, and it wasn't able to retain control like the Romans were. It all fell apart, and then democracy was touted throughout the world. But one day, the imperial form of government's coming back. It was, it is not, and then it comes back. There's a political aspect. I think there's also an individual aspect. And the reason that I say this is because John says in verse 8, the beast that thou sawest shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now if we go back to 11, chapter 11, verse 7, we have this same phrase. This is dealing with an individual. An individual that hates God's two street preachers, God's two anointed ones, Moses and Elijah. This individual, verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street. They will be allowed to be martyred by the beast, an individual that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Here we have a beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. There's an individual aspect. A person versus kindred tongues, tribes, and nations. In chapter 11, the beast uh, orders the the, the, the killing of these preachers. And then, who is it that rejoices? Not the beast, but something other than the beast. The kindreds, the tongues, and the nations are the ones that see their dead bodies and rejoice. And rejoice. Trade gifts like Christmas time. So in chapter 11, the beast is distinguished from the people he rules over. It's not a kingdom. There's an individual here. And so there has to be an individual because it's described as ascending out of the bottomless pit. What does that mean? We've talked about this. The Antichrist, when he comes, is like Christ. He's a counterfeit Christ. That means when Christ returns, Christ has been here before. When Antichrist comes, it's someone who's been here before. He's been here before. It's not something new. It says in verse 8 that he, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. This word here, perdition, is key to understanding what's going on. The Greek word means utter ruin. We know that the Antichrist will go into perdition, utter ruin, because it says in Daniel that he'll be broken without hand, and then later, later in Revelation, he's actually cast alive into the lake of fire. But we see this same word, perdition, used. Paul uses it when talking about the individual Antichrist, and Jesus uses it talking about someone that was here on earth during his first Advent. And that person was instrumental in what happened to Jesus as far as Satan's attempt to destroy him. Let's look at John 17. 
We've talked about this before, but since it's been so long ago, I figured let's review just a little bit. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer and His humanity to God for for His disciples, knowing what's coming. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that Thou gavest Me I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition was the only one of Jesus' disciples that were lost. Who was that? Judas. Judas was the, the definite article, son of perdition. The exact same word we see in Revelation 17 describing the beast. Now turn to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Remember the Thessalonians were wondering if they'd missed the day of the Lord. Paul had already talked to them about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And then we get to 2 Thessalonians like, look, the day of Christ where He comes to judge the world, it's not going to come unless there's a falling away first. And he says that, let no man deceive you, verse 3, by any means, for that day, that's the day of Christ that he's referred to in chapter 1 when he comes in flaming to fire to take vengeance on those that know not God. Don't worry, that day is not here. It won't come first, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The exact same phrase that Jesus used there in John 17. Who is the man of sin? Well, we go to learn later in the chapter. He's already here, John says, his spirit, but his coming is restrained by a what and a he. And as long as the what and the he are here, he can't come to full power. But when the what and the he are taken out of the way, then he'll come. The what is the church. The he is the spirit of God that indwells it. The son of perdition. So we have the beast going into perdition, We have Judas, the son of perdition, and we have Antichrist, the son of perdition. So there's an individual aspect here. Turn to Acts chapter 1. This is kind of interesting as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 25. Actually, let's start at verse 24. The disciples have gathered together and they want to replace Judas. And they've got two candidates. They got Joseph, Joseph called Barsabbas, and Matthias. And they want to replace Judas. And they cast lots. Now we look at this, I'm not going to try to act like I'm spiritual passing judgment here, but you almost have to wonder if this was not the disciples quickly taking matters into their own hands when they should have waited. Because God had already ordained a replacement. Who was that replacement? Paul. And he wasn't called by men casting lots. He was called by Jesus himself appearing to him, just like Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. So you often wonder if maybe this is an example of well-meaning disciples jumping the gun. And we as Christians do that all the time. If we would just wait. Sometimes the best thing to do is wait. When you don't know what to do, wait. When somebody quits your ministry, wait. When you lose your job, wait. When you're unhappy, 
and you want out, wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and He'll strengthen your heart. It takes more discipline and it takes more faith to wait. Now that doesn't mean we should wait around when God makes it very clear when we should leave something. If we're involved in sin, we need to leave it. If we're involved in a relationship uh, that's of the world, we need to leave it. If we're involved in a church that preaches heresy, we need to go. But in other things, there's value in waiting. And I often wonder if that's what we see here, but that's not the purpose of this message, so I'll, I'll go on. And as they're seeking to know whom to choose, they pray. Verse 24, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. So Judas sinned and he fell from this ministry. And then the rest of that sentence tells us why he failed. That he might go to his own place. They gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we're told here that Judas fell that he might go to his own place. Well, what does that even mean? That's not, those words aren't used to describe people's deaths or the deaths of other apostles or other people. It's like a unique thing. And if you look at the language there, the word go is a word that means to continue on in a journey. To go. When I get to southern Chile after a couple days, we're going to go on to Argentina. Go on. We're going on in our journey. Judas fell that he might go on in his own. He's got a journey and he's got to go to the next step. And then the word own place, you know, when I think of the imagery, I think about a, uh, when you go into some parking lots, there's a sign reserving it for an individual. Judas had a assigned parking place for a purpose, and he went there. A special reserved spot. So when you take all of these scriptures together, it seems to me that Judas, the individual, has some part in the last days. There's an individual aspect. He's got some part. He's the son of perdition. And then he's involved. Now when it comes to the Jews, the Jews are going to follow the false Messiah. Jesus said, I came in the Father's name, and you didn't believe me, but one's going to come in his own name and you'll follow him. That's the false Messiah. Jews would never follow a non-Jew as a false Messiah. They just wouldn't do it. They're not going to follow a non-Jew. As a Messiah. But they're going to believe Antichrist is the Messiah. The one who comes in his own name. He has to be Jewish. He has to be somehow related to the Catholic Church. It's the Catholic Church that propels him into prominence. Is it possible that Antichrist will be a future Pope that's actually Jewish? I mean, what greater way to bring Jews and Catholics back together than to have a Jew... On the quote-unquote throne of Peter. I don't know. It seems that way. Judas has to be involved. There's an individual aspect. And in this day and time, we see others that have lived before that come back and have a prominent role. Moses and Elijah come back. Why is it fantastic to think that someone else that Satan used would come back? Just like Christ will come back. Remember, Antichrist is a counterfeit Christ. So there's a political aspect. The 
Imperial government, it was, it is not, and it yet is. There's an, there's an individual aspect. Judas was. When John wrote that, he was not, and yet he is. And then finally, I think there's a tribulation aspect here. And we see this in chapter 13. Remember when we were talking about the beast out of the sea, Antichrist? Several verses. In verse 3 it said, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Verse 12. And he exercises all of the, the power of the first beast. This is the false prophet. Before him and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And then in verse 14, and it uh, uh, talks about making an image and commanding the people of the earth to worship, make an image of the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So the beast is one that was wounded by a sword and yet he lived again. There's an assassination here. There's a rising from the dead here of the Antichrist in the tribulation. And this causes all the world to wonder. And when we get to 17, all the world's wondering. I believe Antichrist is going to come to power. People are going to start following him. He comes in peacefully. He's, he's helped into power by the religious whore. And a lot of, maybe a lot of people are skeptical. Maybe that power can't be consolidated. He's a, a man of influence and power, but the whole world won't worship him until something happens. That opens their eyes. He's assassinated. He rises again. And when everyone sees this, then he can have absolute power. And at that point, what does he not need anymore? Doesn't need the whore. Doesn't need the Catholic Church. He is the final power. Seems to be what's going on here. If you go to Ezekiel 28, the Prince of Tyre, which is a type of Antichrist, it says that he will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of strangers. Well, we talked about that verse when looking at whether or not whether Antichrist is a Jew or Gentile. What does it mean to tell a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile, that he's going to die the death of an uncircumcised? It doesn't make any sense. It seems like the uh, Antichrist, which is the archetype of this prophecy, would be Jewish but yet he's going to die the death of the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised are brutal. They just kill each other. They assassinate each other. And he's going to die at the hands of strangers. Well, I think that's referring to what we see here, a deadly wound that's healed. Dies the death of the uncircumcised. Well, Antichrist doesn't die a death. He's cast alive into the lake of fire. So that has to be referring to what Revelation 13, I think he's assassinated. The death of the uncircumcised with a sword. And yet he rises again, consolidates power. So, to see the beast that was, is not, and yet is, I believe, is bigger than just one thing. It's, a, it's political government, it's an individual, and it involves an assassination on the life of Antichrist himself. And in all of that together, the Scriptures are fulfilled... To the letter and in detail, the details are unforeseeable and it's a great stumbling block to the wicked. It's a stumbling block because they are unable to see what's so clearly spelled out here in the book of Revelation. The Bible won't be completely extinguished from the earth. It'll be there. But people can't see. They can't see. 
They that dwell on the earth shall wonder in amazement. And therefore they'll worship Him. Whatever happens here causes them to wonder. Everybody that talks about democracy, freedom, liberty are going to welcome imperial government. They're going to welcome a dictatorship. And they're going to welcome a man and worship him as God because of his so-called pseudo-resurrection that counterfeits the Christ, the Messiah. On a side note, we see them that dwell upon the earth. If you go back to chapter 13, this same beast, he hates God. He blasphemes. But he doesn't just blaspheme God. In verse 6 it says he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God to blaspheme his name and his temple and them that dwell in heaven. So there's those that dwell in heaven during this time and those that dwell on earth. Those that dwell on earth wonder after the beasts. They're his subjects. And the beast hates those that dwell in heaven and mocks them. Well, that word dwell there is the same root that we see Jesus use in John 14. I go to prepare a place to you in my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to come and receive you to myself. When the beast is here, there are those dwelling in heaven. Who is that? It's the church. And he hates the church. And he blasphemes the church. And people are deceived because the institutionalized church that remains is able to write off the rapture and deceive people. Oh, UFOs got them. Or there was spontaneous combustion or whatever they want to say. All you got to do is turn on the radio late at night like we did driving home and listen to George Norrie or Art Bell and listen to the stuff they're talking about, UFOs. And they were playing these tapes that people recorded in a haunted house last night where, oh, that's... Two distinct voices. We've got proof of two ghosts talking to each other. And yeah, there were sounds, but it could have just easily been somebody dragging a chair across. I mean, I wasn't hearing what they were hearing. But, I mean, people will believe things. You know, the fact that people believe the, the narrative about what happened in Las Vegas months ago shows a foolishness of this country. The, people, the fact that people believe what they're telling us happened in that Parkland school. Shows the, the gullible nature of the American people. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in the sense that I'm looking at stuff and saying this, this happened and this didn't happen or kids weren't killed or kids weren't killed. I'm not trying to figure it out. The fact is, I don't believe anything the news media or my government tells me. I guess it could have happened like they said, but I certainly don't believe it. Believe it because they said it. I mean, there's just as much chance that the whole thing is staged as if, as if it really happened like they said, I guess, because they lie to us time and time again. Yes. That doesn't mean I'm going to stand here and claim that no kids were killed or there was absolutely... This. I don't know what happened. I don't think we'll ever know. I don't trust anything, they say. But people believe anything. So you have them that dwell in heaven. Remember, the church is in heaven at this time. There's that subtle evidence of a pre-trib rapture there by who the beast blasphemed. And yet, there's still that distinction made in 17. Those that dwell on heaven versus those that dwell on earth. Which are those dwelling on earth that wonder after this beast? It's those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So we're not talking about the Jewish witnesses or tribulation saints. 
those not written in the book of life. Our friends, those that are God's people, whether in the Old Testament dispensation or now in the New Testament dispensation, they are those whose names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This wasn't something that you aren't saved because you decided to be saved. You were saved because God saved you. And He purposed it in you from the foundation of the world. That's why Jonah said salvation is of the Lord. Some people can't handle that. But it's true. And it's revealed to us the church as a source of comfort and strength in these dark days. Just as we couldn't attain it, we can't lose it if we have it. I'm probably not going to go on too much farther. I know this is the last time. But we have this beast that was and is not and yet is. Like I said, there's a political element. Imperial government's going to return. There's an individual element. I believe Judas Iscariot is somehow involved. And there's a tribulational element. The Antichrist is there as an influential leader. He's not because he's killed. And then he is again. And the world will wonder. Those that wonder are those dwelling on the earth at that time. And people are so stupid today, I don't believe they're going to be able to wonder about imperial government or wonder about Judas Iscariot because they ain't going to know anything about that. I mean, most people walking the streets today couldn't name five presidents of the United States, most of these young people. So they're too dumb to wonder after the political and the individual aspect. They'll wonder after the tribulational aspect. But it's, it's bigger than just one. I don't think it's either or. It's both, it's both and. It's God's prophecy fulfilled in more than one facet, just like we see in the Old Testament. Verses 9 through 11, we see the angel exegete, in particular, the seven heads. He focuses on the seven heads in verses 9 through 11, and then when we get down to verse 12, he focuses on the ten horns. The seven heads span all of history. The ten horns zero in on the tribulation period. But what's really important, just like the word mystery in the name, verse 5, just like the word perdition in verse 8, in verse 9, that first phrase is very important. Just like those other words are important to our understanding. We can't deny certain relationships based on the way those words are used elsewhere in Scripture. This first phrase here in verse 9. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Here is the mind that hath wisdom. This is a clear indication of the complexity and the difficulty regarding the revelation that's about to follow. Spiritual wisdom is required to understand it, not earthly wisdom. Discernment is needed about what the angel is about to unveil. Discernment doesn't limit fulfillment to one period in history. Discernment zeroes out and looks at all of human history as governed by God for a specific purpose. It takes spiritual discernment to understand what these seven heads are and what these ten horns are. Spiritual discernment. It's funny because both the dragon or the dragon, the beast out of the sea, and this scarlet beast, which is the puppy form of the beast out of the sea, they all have seven heads. If you travel in the Far East or in South Asia, it's funny, it's interesting how a lot of idols, even today, have seven heads. You know, seven heads or seven arms. 
We see this uh, in idolatry, particularly in the Far East. A lot of times you'll see idols with seven serpent heads. So it's funny how even that alludes to the false religious system articulated in the Bible. Spiritual wisdom and discernment is required. Now what is discernment? What is spiritual discernment? Well, Paul tells us it's a spiritual gift. But unlike some of the other spiritual gifts, Paul also tells us in Hebrews that we can develop it, that we can exercise it, that we can grow it. A spiritual gift is given by God. You can't obtain a spiritual gift that's not a grace, a a charis, the word grace. The word gift means grace. You can't obtain a spiritual gift that's not given to you by God. Some have the gifts of preaching and teaching. Some have the gifts of prophecy. In, in other words, foretelling. Some have the gifts of helps. Now, we can exercise our things, our, our, ourselves in those things, but the gift can only from, come from God. Spiritual discernment, however, is a little bit different in that it is a gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. But it's also something that Paul tells us we need to develop in our lives something we need to exercise ourselves thereby. And he tells us exactly how to do it. 1 Corinthians 12.10. I'll just read real quick. This will, I think, give me a good place to stop. 1 Corinthians 12.10. It's talking about spiritual gifts. That's one of the lists here. We see a list in Romans as well. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. There's a spiritual gift of discernment that can discern whether a spirit is true or not. Discern what's true and what's false. That's a spiritual gift. There are those that have that gift and can see things long before others can in terms of whether this person is true or false. I'm not claiming to have that gift. It is one of those gifts that can easily be misused. Those that have it can be really right but if it's misused, they can be really wrong. I know in my, I believe that's one of the gifts God has given me. I believe that there's a gift, a spiritual gift of discernment. The very first time I ever saw a message by Rick Warren was long before The Purpose Driven Life ever came out. Nobody knew who he was. He had written a book called The Purpose Driven Church. I was in seminary and we saw a video of this preacher preaching. And this was when his church was starting to grow. And our professor was like wanting to show us this in a church growth class. Guy was up there preaching. He wasn't all stylish and fashionable like he became when he was popular. He definitely uh, made some kind of deal with somebody to get the look and the style because he didn't have it in the beginning. The dude was sweating profusely when he was preaching. He looked like a total dog. But the guy was up there preaching And it wasn't three minutes into that sermon I said to myself, this guy's false. This guy's false. I I can't even explain it to you. But it was, I knew it. When When I took a job over at the Christian school here, I was over there for orientation not two days. I hadn't really even met the people that were in control of that school. I spent five minutes with the principal's wife and I knew that woman was false. So I've seen some uses of that in my life. I've seen other things, though, where I react instead of respond. 
And I open my mouth instead of sitting back and watching, and I end up being really wrong. So there is a spiritual gift there. I believe that's one of the gifts the Lord has given me. But it is also something that we are exhorted to as Christians to develop in our own lives. And the spiritual gift of discernment is like the spiritual gift of evangelism. The evangelist, the one with the gift, remember evangelism is, is like discernment. It's something that is a gift, but it's also something we all, all as the body of Christ are to do. So that tells us that the gift of evangelism is not for the evangelist to go out and do the Great Commission while everybody else sits back and only writes checks to help him do it. It tells us the goal or the gift of evangelism is to be used to train up the church or the body of Christ so they can do evangelism. Spiritual discernment is not one of the only gifts that we're told. to Evangelism too, that just came to mind. So the one with spiritual discernment, his primary goal, since elsewhere we're told to develop that, is not to just discern for everybody and tell everybody what's right and wrong, but to train believers in the Word so they can know and discern good and evil. That's the goal. That's, the, that's what the one with the spiritual gift is to do, is to use it for the edification of the church. Hebrews chapter 5. Paul's telling us it's a spiritual gift. Hebrews chapter 5. Particularly to the Jewish saints scattered abroad, wavering back and forth between, did we do the right thing by following this Jesus, or do we go back into the sacrificial system? Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. He's talking to Jews that had to go back to the milk of the word because they couldn't digest the meat. Those that are constantly dieting on the milk of the word are unskillful in the word of righteousness because they are a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So Paul is telling the Hebrews that, look, I need to feed you meat. You need to be at the meat, but I can't give it to you. Now we're going to have to go back to the milk because you guys can't digest it. But he's telling them we need to get to a point where we can digest the milk, the meat of the Word. And by being able to digest the meat of the Word, we can discern good and evil. So, how do we... Develop discernment. We're told here by using God's Word. By reason of use, we're able to digest the meat and we're able to um, have our senses exercised so that they can discern good and evil. We exercise our bodies so that we can accomplish certain things. I, I exercise my body so that I can make these treks and these trips on the mission field to find the Israelis. It'd be a lot more miserable and I'd have... No desire to talk about the gospel if I was severely out of shape when I went and tried to do this. We also need to exercise our spirits and our senses. And we do it with God's word. And that helps us to know the difference between good and evil to discern. So to understand revelation, we've got to have discernment. Those with the gift of discernment need to be those that help the body of Christ to develop discernment. Encourage them to be in the Word. Somebody's got a gift of discernment and is, and is in a position of teaching the body of Christ, they're going to be teaching the body of Christ not do as I say, but study the Word. Study the Word. They're going to be pointing to the Word, not themselves, so that their brothers and sisters too can develop discernment. 
Here's the mind that has wisdom. Spiritual discernment needed. Here. That spiritual discernment to understand what follows here begins with an understanding. And it begins with an understanding we've already talked about. Using two examples. Nineveh and Tyre. What we see here is literal. We understand this from biblical prophecy. It's to the letter. Its details are unforeseeable. Therefore, we're not going to make dogmatic claims about the specific details. Unforeseeable. We'll talk about what we think it is, what it might be, what it could be based upon this. But the details are unforeseeable, just like they were for judgment of Nineveh and Tyre, and just like they were for the Old Testament prophets who prophesied things that we're told they couldn't understand. And then finally, what follows is a stumbling block to those who lightly esteem the Word. Those who lightly esteem the Word will never understand these things. They'll foolishly believe that Revelation was all fulfilled in the past because they don't understand the Word. Because John Calvin said so. He didn't ever say that anyway. I think about the men of Issachar. 1 Chronicles 12.32 The men of Issachar were spoken of those who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel should do. Spiritual discernment here begins with an understanding of God's of biblical prophecy in terms of judgment. It's always exactly what it says. God's always going to do exactly what He says He's going to do, even though we can't see and understand the details now. Looking back, we'll say, man, God did exactly what He said He was going to do, not just in one aspect, but in multiple aspects. But with that comes an understanding of the time so that we should know what we should do. The men of Issachar understood the times and were able to advise Israel what to do. We study these things not because we're going to be here as the church. We study them because the times of their advent are here and we need to know what to do. We need to know how to warn, how to preach. Antichrist's spirit is here. If we can't recognize him and how he's coming, literally we'll never recognize his spirit. Spiritual discernment is needed. Something deeper is at work here than just a Republican good, Democrat bad. There's something deeper at work here in the world right now. In the elections that have happened here and in other countries, there's something deeper at work when we look at what's happening in Syria, when we look at the Russians, and when we look at the Chinese and what's going to happen in Korea. We may think, oh, that's a great thing if... The North Koreans agree to, 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 to get rid of their nuclear weapons and Trump brings peace. That's a good thing for the moment. But we as Christians with spiritual discernment need to understand there's something deeper at work. Mm-hmm. The mystery of iniquity is at work. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. God governs it all. But God's putting these things in the hearts of the wicked to fulfill His will. We're going to see that later in the chapter. There's something deeper at work. That's why our allegiance ought to be not to a nation, not to a flag, but to the Lamb, the Lamb of God. There's something deeper at work here. It's not Republican good, Democrat bad. It's not MAGA versus the liberals. There's a giant spiritual conspiracy going on. 
I'm a conspiracy theorist. I don't predict and try to decide what happened in certain instances, but I don't trust anything. And behind every movement of man is a devil, an old serpent, a dragon, who since day one has sought through conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy to overthrow God's rule and to assert what God has anointed and ordained for His Messiah. There's been a conspiracy in this world since day one. So we ought to be conspiracy theorist. I don't know what the word... Not theorist, because we know it's there. I don't know what the word would be. But um, we saw this Daniel. Remember Daniel? The angels came. They were restrained. There was a spiritual battle going on. That's what's happening now. And we know the course of things. So let's don't be so foolish to think that some golden age is coming to America because of Trump. We support him and pray for him as the scriptures say. Support him when he does things right and call him out when he does things wrong. There's something deeper at work here. We, there is a spiritual level to everything that happens in history. We can't deny that. I don't know how you could even teach history in a school with, when you, by just completely in the physical. History has a spiritual element, and it cannot be understood apart from that. What does that mean we need to do? We need to be those who exercise ourselves in the Scriptures, and that's what we're trying to do. And Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4 tell us we need to redeem the time. By studying these things, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we begin to understand what's coming. We rejoice in knowing that God's going to deliver us as the church like He delivered just Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's time left. We've got to redeem it. How do we redeem it? We redeem it by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We redeem it by preaching the gospel to the lost and being a stalwart source of support and comfort for the believer. Redeeming the time. These things ought to... Propel us to redeem the time. And that's why we're, man, in my flesh, I don't want to get on the plane and leave my house and leave everything and be away from you guys for all this time. But we've got to redeem the time. So I'll just stop here. I, you know, I was going to get into the seven heads. I think it's really interesting. Um, the seven heads are seven mountains. And again, when we get into... Bible believers who try to interpret this, they'll say it, ha- it is either this or either that. I don't think we're talking about that. I think it's more than one aspect. I don't think you can deny a connection here to the city of Rome, nor do I think that it's limited to that. So we'll get into uh, those things. Some people would say, well, you know, what was Rome known as in history? The eternal city that sits upon what? Seven hills. That's what it was known as in John's day. So how could that not be related? Well, people say, well, you know, Rome grew and it actually incorporated a couple more hills. It wasn't seven. Well, the ancient city of Rome was founded on seven hills and that's what it was noted to be. I mean, when, we, when I say Kansas City, what state do you associate that with? Missouri. You don't associate it with Kansas. Because it was established on the east bank of the Mississippi and it later overflowed into Kansas. It exists in Kansas today, but when we say Kansas City, we always associate it immediately with Missouri. 
even though it's spread out. So why would it be weird to associate Rome with seven hills long after it's spread out? Then people say, well, you know, if you go to Rome, there's not... Those hills are not mountains. They're hills. They're not mountains. Well, the psalmist says that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord encamps about His people. Now, I don't, some of you have been to Jerusalem. Those aren't mountains, as we call them mountains. People out west laugh at us because we look at the Appalachians and call them. Those aren't mountains. Those are just hills. You know, what makes something a mountain is not the elevation necessarily. Okay, I've hiked hills 5,000 feet in elevation from the bottom to the top that are more rugged than strolling over mountains in Peru at 15,000 feet. More steep. But it's funny because when I was thinking about mountains, why couldn't this reference to a mountain be referring to hills? It was when the psalmist wrote about Jerusalem. But I thought about Catawba County. Who knows how many mountains, called mountains, are in Catawba County? What's the highest point in Catawba County? Baker's Mountain, right? Now, Baker's Mountain is not very tall. I mean, it's barely over 1,000 feet. But we call it Baker's Mountain. Now, it has a prominence, so maybe we could say, okay, it's a mountain. Who knows what other mountains are in Catawba County? There's very few of them. One of them's right out my back door. And it's Lynn Mountain. Now, <laughs> Lynn Mountain's just a bump. Lynn Mountain. There's another one out near where I live. And it doesn't look like a mountain on Highway 10, but if you turn left and go around the other side of it, or you go out to the east side, it's called Brindle Mountain. It's on private property. I snuck up there one day to bag it. Over near Plateau, we've got a mountain called Hog Hill. Hog Hill. And then over near Cheryl's Ford, there's two mountains. Who knows what they are? If you look at a terrain map of Catawba County, it's a very weird prominence. There's two of them. Come right up. There's Anderson Mountain and Anderson Mountain East. That's all we've got in Catawba County. Baker's Mountain, Brindle Mountain, Lynn Mountain, Anderson Mountain, Anderson Mountain East, and Hog Hill. They're called mountains. Hog Hill's called a hill. But they're not, they're not mountains in the sense of Mount Everest. So it's not a fantastic thing to think that seven mountains could be referring to the seven hills of Rome and to discard that knowing that that's the city that ruled the world in the days John wrote this, knowing that Rome was always known as that, to discard that because the hills of Rome don't match a certain elevation is kind of foolish. So there's obviously a relationship there, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that when we go back and look at world history and we look at the forms of imperial government that have existed from day one, we already talked about this with the dragon. Kingdoms that have come and gone, imperial kingdoms, that not only were imperial in the way they were organized, but they were instruments whereby God's people of Israel were persecuted in some way. So we'll get back into that, the imperial kingdoms of world history, when I return, and then hopefully... Uh, we can move a little faster through chapter 18 and then get to the good stuff, the climax of human history. All right, I've gone longer than I've ever gone today. I'm really sorry, but I hope you'll forgive me uh, uh, because of um, uh, this being the last time. So let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for this word today from your word, not my opinion. Lord, I pray you give us understanding that we would be those who have a mind of wisdom, that we would exercise ourselves, Lord, in the scriptures to know how to discern good and evil. Those of us here with spiritual gifts that we would not use them for ourselves or our own benefit, but we would use them for the benefit and the edification of the saints and the church, that we may all redeem the time. Lord, help us to be those that step back and realize there's something greater and more devious going on here. And not to immediately assume things to be good or immediately assume things to be bad, but to have a, a discerning spirit. I think about the wise man in Proverbs and I, something in, in some ways that is opposite, exact opposite of what I've proven myself to be many times. A, a wise man doesn't automatically spill his whole spill the beans or open up his mouth and reveal what he thinks immediately. He doesn't react. He responds. He knows when to speak and when to refrain his lips. And I pray we will be such as that. And Lord, as the time nears for these things to come to pass, as the time nears for you to remove the restrainer from the world, I pray that we would be motivated, not asleep, but awake, redeeming the time, preaching the gospel, encouraging one another, not being sidetracked by the things of this earth. Lord, we do pray for our president that he would be wise, that you would save him, that he would do things that are righteous, um, but that, Lord, regardless, we would keep our eyes on you. Lord, not put our faith and trust in a man or in a government. We pray for men and government leaders that you would save them. But ultimately, we know that government will fail. It fails, Lord. But there is a stone cut without hands that's coming. Lord, often in the Scriptures, governments are called mountains. So the seven mountains there has to relate to Rome, but it also has to relate to world government. Babylon was a destroying mountain. David praised you, God, because you had given him his mountain at the dedication of the house of the Lord there in Psalms. His kingdom was a mountain. And that stone cut without hands, that Messiah that breaks the worldly mountains to chaff, becomes a mighty mountain in the earth, the mountain of the house of the Lord. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when that kingdom will rule, when there will be no political parties, there will be no um, uh, curse, but the saints will rule and reign with you for a thousand years and then we'll be there for a new heaven and a new earth that you, O oh Lord, will create. Eternity in a creation as it was meant to be all the way back in the beginning. We thank you for that. Bless the food we're about to eat. I pray for this church. Lord, I pray that you would your hand of protection, your hand of blessing would remain upon it uh, and that they would continue to be a light here in this community and a source of strength and comfort for one another. Those that are teaching and leading in the weeks ahead, give them wisdom and discernment to preach. I think of Brother Daniel who's going to be preaching and sharing from Philippians. I pray you would give him wisdom, Lord, to deliver the word. Lord, we look forward to the day we can fellowship again around Revelation. Until that time, I ask God that uh, you would use us in our respective spheres of influence to redeem the time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.